We should be literally trying to change our buyers' thinking on their own problems. Tell them where those icebergs in the distance are. You can help them see round corners. You have to speak to me because I'm a market expert. And number one, increases the value of the seller because they become an expert in that process. But number two, it changes the buyer's buying process. They actually now start going, well, actually, I probably need the seller earlier in this process than I thought I did before. Mm -hmm. So one thing that we've been trying to encourage enablement functions to do is stop with all this product training. Everyone's sick of it. Enablement is sick of it. Sellers are sick of it. And the customer's sick of it. So we should be doubling down on basically giving our reps deep market expertise. Hi, friends. Welcome to the WinRate Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. Now, that was Aaron Evans. And Aaron is one of my guests on this episode of the WinRate Podcast. Aaron is the co-founder and head of training and enablement at Flow State, and he's the host of Selling with Flow Podcast. Now, my other guest today for this interesting discussion about sales effectiveness, the buyer experience, and increasing win rates is Doug C. Brown. Doug is the founder of CEO Sales Strategies. Now, two quick items of business before we jump into today's discussion. First, I have a quick favor to ask. If you're enjoying this new podcast, I really hope you are, could you leave a quick rating or review for the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts? Because receiving this feedback is very important to me. So very much appreciate your help with this. Thank you in advance if you do so. Second, over 50,000 sellers and sales leaders subscribe to receive my weekly newsletter. Perhaps you should too. It's called Win Rate Wednesday, and each week you'll receive one actionable tip to accelerate your win rates and a bunch of other great advice as well. So to subscribe, visit andypaul.com. That's my website. Right there on the front page, you can sign up. Okay, you ready? All right, let's jump into the discussion. Welcome, everyone, to the Win Rate Podcast. I want to welcome my guests, Aaron Evans, Doug Brown. Aaron, we'll lead off with you. Just a quick introduction. Yeah, sure. My name's Aaron Evans. I own an organization called Fly State. We're a sales excellence organization. We help businesses improve their sales quality, training, coaching, development, all of those key things that go around it. I'm based over here in London, although I do a lot of work over in the States where you guys are. And uh, yeah, just super excited to, to be on the podcast, Andy. Excited to have you here. And Doug. Yeah. Hi, I'm Doug C. Brown. I own a company called CEO Sales Strategies, where we train uh, people to think and act like 1% sales earners. We help them accomplish that goal. And we focus on selling to CEOs and business owners and expansion. And do you have, are your clients basically CEOs as well? Yeah. I mean, we have companies, we have individuals who are looking to get there. So we help companies as large as Procter & Gamble and CBS television, mm -hmm. Intuit and people like that. And we also help uh, people on pretty much small and medium-sized business levels as well. And then we teach people to actually help those people or work for yeah. those people, one or the other. Right. Well, let me ask you a question. I will start with you, Doug. Is why are CEOs in particular, but I also see this among CROs, sort of oblivious to win rates and the effectiveness of their sales force? Well, oblivious. <laughs> Over 20, 23 years of sales consulting and so on, I've never had a CEO be able to answer the question. So what's your win rate? Well, usually, I mean, depending on the size company, the CEO is not going to be reaching down in the win rates. That's going to drive down into the, the sales yes. side. They should be. I'm not saying they shouldn't be. Even small and mid-sized companies. I mean, it's okay. Well, a lot of times, Andy, they look at top line, right? So they're not managed from, they should be, but they're not managing from an optimized state. 
So they're managing from top line. Hey, we were here, we grew by 2% over the last year, or we grew by X. Just as they're not looking at their, as they should be, they're not looking at their expenses. They're not looking at the optimization of their companies. I mean, that's one of the things that we do for companies. So I can wholeheartedly say that they don't do that on a regular basis. (laughs) And just simple things like win rate, re-engagement of dormant clients, for example, can increase win rate for them. You know what I mean? There's all kinds of ways of increasing win rate for a company, but most of them are so busy focused on trying to either A, acquire new clients and new business or business expansion. And it's been my experience, they don't dive down into that, those metrics, even though they should, especially if they're a small and medium-sized business. Aaron, you're nodding your head. Yeah, I mean, something really resonated me with that thing around obsession with acquiring new customers. Most organizations we go into, they assume they've got a top of funnel problem. But actually, when you start delving into it, they've often got like a kind of funnel optimization problem. That's really the problem. And you speak to these businesses and they're like, we, we win one in four. And it's like, okay, so 75% of the customers you engage with, you've just scorched that territory, right? So one of the things that we're obsessed with doing and getting our clients to, to look at it through this lens is this idea of truly trying to understand what are the actions in the customer's buying process, not sales process, because sales process is wishful thinking, right? Mm-hmm. It's like something we're trying to push on to a client. It's actually about the, the buying process. How do we optimize those interactions and really identify what those interactions are? And then do those at scale. And that's not just in terms of the process, but also the competency that comes with that as well, right? So focusing the whole sales organization on the things that we know we need to do to make it easier for the buyer to buy and give them confidence in the decisions they're making. And then you can transform a pipeline overnight by doing that. And then when you realize that, you're actually like, well, hold on a minute. This isn't really a top of funnel problem. We're actually, as more stuff goes into the funnel, we're being smarter whether we choose or want to work with those customers and have them in the funnel because... We understand them and their buying process a lot deeper and more intimately. And actually, we end up having higher win rates, conversion rates, optimizing and converting blended through the funnel. But more importantly, like aggressively qualifying out. And these businesses have no right being in the pipeline in the first place, to be perfectly honest with you. Well, it seems like that's one of the real problems that that I see with companies is the point you were just addressing, Aaron, is there a complete lack of rigor in terms of acceptance criteria (laughs) into the funnel? It's like, Almost sellers saying, and even managers saying, well, they're here, thus I must sell to them, as opposed to, no, we're going to make a choice whether we're going to sell to you or not, right? We're going to choose. And this idea of choosing seems to be lost on many. Andy, I think a lot of times it's driven by the, the, the marketing side of the business, right? So marketers look at it in a capacity, and I'm sure marketers will be upset with me when I say this, but marketers look at it as, hey, I throw a lead in the process, you should be able to close it. Right, but they're not looking at it really as it a lead, marketing qualified lead, a sales qualified lead, or sales ready lead, which is what we're we're tending to want as sales people, right? So anywhere between mm-hmm. the sales qualified and sales ready to preferably purchase order ready, that's what we all want. But the a lot of those metrics are driven by I just spent X thousands or tens of thousands, a hundreds of thousands of dollars on on leads. We've got to get those to convert, but what they're not doing is they're not nurturing them up high enough up that funnel in order for a sales team to actually take them. And a lot of times that's one of the reasons they're happy with that one out of that 25% conversion or something like that, because they're not looking at it from a win rate. They're looking at it from a top line. Hey, I put 300 grand in, I got back 600,000. I've doubled my money. That's good enough. Where we would look at it and say, yeah, but how do you know that shouldn't have been 480? And that's where I think they get, they run into trouble. Yeah. I mean, 
spend less on marketing, spend half on marketing and we'll double the win rate and we'll yield a lot more revenue off of that. But we seem to be in sort of this vicious cycle where we don't have this acceptance criteria and sellers end up working more opportunities than they should. And just use simple rule of thumb as your win rate typically will be the reciprocal of your pipeline coverage requirements. So if you got a 5X pipeline recoverage, you're going to win 20%. And it's, well, the answer to a lot of companies is, well, and I saw this on LinkedIn from somebody that <laughs> really should know better, <laughs> saying, well, if you're operating in a low win rate environment, the answer is more pipeline. <laughs> no, the answer is not more pipeline. <laughs> It's the opposite. Let's teach them to win a higher fraction of the deals. <laughs> I've got a load of holes in my bucket. The answer to tell me this is just keep pouring more water. Or keep pouring more water. Right. water yeah, because you got a leak. It's, it's just craziness. And then the other thing I think to a point you're making, Doug, is sure, marketing, you expect sales to provide some form of market intelligence back to marketing about, hey, these are the deals that we're winning, right? And we need more of this. Target targeted lead. But if your sales is in this low win rate, 20, 25% win rate, what sort of intelligence are you giving back to, to marketing? Mm. I mean, not very good because you don't know really what's winning. And you could arguably make the case in the way of a lot of the SaaS companies op- have operated. I mean, it's, some are changing these days, is that they were just sort of playing the odds anyway in the deals they're winning. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a, I think that's a really good point. I think po- kind of pipeline scrutiny definitely going to change within SaaS over the next two or three years. Because there's not an abundance of demand. This is not going to be with most of these companies. Most of these SaaS companies, the products, when you sort of scratch under the surface, is a nice to have. Mm-hmm. So therefore, all yeah. those nice to have purchases are now going to be, if it's not affecting my P&L, why am I buying it? It's going to be the, the question that every buyer is going to ask. Yeah. So well, it wouldn't surprise me if we see more pipeline scrutiny. And, and to the point that, that Doug was just making there is that we've seen to, for, we, it's almost like we've forgotten this idea that there's a difference between a lead and an opportunity. It's okay, you can have leads, but they sit outside of your opportunity until they right. they hit the criteria to go into your pipeline. But that, that seems to be lost now. It's like a I always describe pipeline as like organizing a dinner party. You don't just invite everyone off the street to your dinner party. It's well, I've got I've got to know them. I've got they've got to bring something to the party themselves and then they're welcome to come into the pipeline. But now it's just everything comes into the pipeline. It's, it can stay as a lead until we've qualified it really deeply, yeah. right? Yeah, I, I wrote that in my first book. It's like as a salesperson, you need to imagine you're like the bouncer at the head of the velvet line trying to get yeah. into a club. Not everybody gets into your club. Yeah, yeah, that's okay. I'm sorry, yeah. Doug, go ahead. No, I, I, it's a really good point. There's a couple of good points here. I think that one of the reasons that a lot of salespeople don't do that is because they don't have enough in their pipeline, right? They don't have enough there. So they're looking at that and going, oh my gosh, I got to hit quota. I got to get over this. And they're not becoming master prospectors. They're actually just becoming a prospector. And then they're trying to become more of a master closer yeah. in the process. And I've always found the master prospector who qualifies or disqualifies, like mm-hmm. you're talking about, and is the one who will outsell the other people most of the time in companies. And I think to Aaron's point, which is a really valid point is, I think a lot of companies are looking at this as, oh, uh, this is a sales process. And the reality is it's a buying process. And the more we understand, as Aaron made point, the more we understand about what the buying process is, then we can look at how do we disqualify people, right? Because we know that certain criteria are going to convert and certain criteria are not going to convert due to paying attention to the whole buying process. Mm -hmm. Then we can optimize in on that component. So we'll know who to dismiss. And why? Because a lot of times it's not, 
we don't have bad clients most of the time. We have bad decisions on our company side to take a client, right? And then right. they turn into a challenge. Right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think we've all experienced that one several times. So someone's like, oh my God, why do we sell this client in the first place? Yeah, it wasn't a fit. I think we're sort of in this conundrum is how do we, how do we sort of change this prevailing culture that we see, which is, you know, I had a conversation with the CRO of a publicly traded SaaS company a couple of years ago and saying, well, what's your growth strategy and lays out this idea as well. We're going to really sort of optimize top of funnel stuff. So we're just going to invest more to get top of funnel. I'm going to hire a bunch of SDRs and off we go. And I, we had been already talking. I knew that their win rate as an organization was like 19% on their qualified opportunities. And I was like, well, I have all, you know, have you ever thought about investing and trying to increase your win rate? Maybe it'd be less expensive to grow if we just, if you yielded a higher fraction of the opportunities that were coming through, that were qualified. And I got this look back as not that I was stupid or anything, but the look was like, it just wasn't anything they'd thought of. It wasn't even, yeah. it wasn't even up for consideration because we've got this finely tuned machine at the top of the funnel. And, and as Aaron said before, we're going to burn through 75% of our TAM. Well, I think, I think part of the problem though is that the examples we keep giving are SAS examples and, and SAS particularly is, I, mean, I, th I think it's kind of poisoned the well a bit with selling in general. And I know that might come across a bit dramatic, but when you look at the funding model of SAS, where it's, we've got to grow 75% year on year, is it surprising that all they're obsessed with is top of funnel and then no one's taking a, coming off the hamster wheel and taking a deep breath and going, well, hold mm -hmm. on, let's examine our business at the moment. Because this is why I think one of the reasons I think SAS has poisoned the world so much is because of these aggressive growth targets that they've got an answer to to VC firms. If you look at top of funnel practices, they're just atrocious. They're like, they're killing the brand of selling across the globe where it's like mass emailing our customers on these sequences, mm -hmm. you know, really aggressive tactics to get people into the pipeline in the first place is that, you know, this toxicity at the top of the funnel. Is it any surprise that it starts bleeding down into the rest of the pipeline? Well, no, of course it's not. So I think, again, I think this teetering of the economy at the moment is going to give a much needed reset for SaaS businesses. First of all, I think we're going to see a lot more bootstrapping. I don't think we're going to see as much investment going into the market mm -hmm. we're seeing already, which I think is a blessing or they yep. think. We all know these VC firms, for every SaaS company, they're demanding 75% growth. They've got another 20 that they're doing with hoping that one of them hits the jackpot anyway. So I, I think for me is that there's a chance here to kind of reset and look at what top of funnel activity looks like. And I think it's going to be things like we're going, we're seeing the like a lot of success in conferences and face to face. Mm -hmm. We're seeing customers are getting generally really pissed off with this whole mass emailing and it's turning them off. We're seeing a lot of success around building personal brands, using more of a kind of pull mechanism versus a push mechanism through that as well. So it wouldn't surprise me if we see some kind of these, these tactics that we've seen, these aggressive SaaS tactics over the last 10 years just dying out. And I think the buyer wants that as well, to be perfectly honest. Sure. So more full cycle sales rep, perhaps? I think so. Yeah. I think we're going to go back to that 360 model, particularly over the next four or five years. Look, I mean, the reality is, let's look at the SDR model now, is that you could get an API to do that as long as their outbound software talks to chat GPT. I mean, they've kind of made themselves redundant, these SDRs. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not saying that's the future of SDRs because they can evolve and become little mini market experts. They just right. keep seeding the market or market challenges. But I mean, in its current format, why would you spend 30 grand a year on an SDR when you can just get ChatGPT to do it for free and get the same results, which is basically garbage anyway, to be honest with you. 30 grand? <laughs> Where are you hiring your SDRs? <laughs> <laughs> well, in the UK market, we were hearing stories during the boom of 
80 grand OTE for SDRs. I mean, it's certainly in the US, you could find that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. there was some SDRs, six figures for sure. And now a message from Closed. An often overlooked way to improve your win rate is to identify and close win back opportunities. After conducting tens of thousands of buyer interviews, Closed has found that 10% of closed loss deals have the potential to be won back at some point in the future. Now, identifying these win back opportunities early and knowing when and how to follow up could be worth millions. Closed recently helped one of their customers identify and win a $500,000 win back opportunity within days of it being marked as closed lost. Closed automatically reached out to perform a win loss interview when the deal was marked closed loss in the CRM. And the buyer said, well, actually, we're still interested and we're ready to sign the contract. Closed is finding win-back deals on a daily basis for their clients. How about for you? To help you get started receiving the value of consistent, direct, candid feedback from your buyers, Closed is offering all my listeners a free gift. Just go to winlosstoolkit.com and they'll send you a bunch of valuable tools to help you get your win-loss program started. The toolkit includes a comprehensive guide to running a successful win-loss program, an ROI calculator, and they'll even perform your first win-loss interview for free to help you see the value of getting feedback directly from your buyers. So to claim your gift, visit winlosstoolkit.com. That's winlosstoolkit.com. And now a message from Alego. Are you struggling to make your sales team more efficient and improve time to productivity? With Alego's modern revenue enablement platform, marketing sales and enablement teams get on the same page for continuous improvement. So break through all the noise and deliver the buying experiences that your buyers today demand. Enable faster ramp times for your rep and more revenue for your business in less time. See how it all can work for you. Go to alego.com demo. That is alego.com demo. I think you guys are hitting it right on the head. I mean, a lot of companies look at what I would call conversion rate, right? How, how many leads come in to how many leads close versus a win rate, which right. is how many qualified leads, how many conversations are leading to a close. Right. And so they look at that because of that, like Aaron, you're saying the VC money comes in, they're just, they just want that ROI to be whatever it's going to be, no matter what. So they're, they're driving that down. This reminds me kind of the late eighties when the tech boom came and the dot-com thing was starting because I was in the technology business back then and mm -hmm. investors were throwing money left and right for the craziest of ideas. And if you just had an idea that you want to bring into the dot-com, I mean, well, there's 80 million, here you go, boom. And a lot of these techniques actually were deployed back then as well. And then there was that market correction that you're speaking about where it, it's, okay, let's get back to reality. Human beings are human beings and they want to be communicated with. And there's a personal ROI and a professional ROI on every sale. And I think this mass marketing technique gets away from that personal ROI, which is going to drop win rates. Because yeah. I mean, in a B2C, it's okay, well, we, you make a decision, you might lose some money, but in a B2B play, you might lose your career over making the wrong decision, right? So there's the personal ROI. You want to, you know, have safety and security. So a lot of people in selling I see are missing that human dynamic of, of the sale due to this issue I think you guys are bringing up. Right. Yes, so how well. do we, I mean, Aaron, you're more sort of in the enablement space and so on, is how do we begin to change this culture that is so purely product-driven, seemingly, on sales, right? And yet, in the face of data from Gartner and Forrester and other sources, 
that show that the single largest, most influential factor in purchase decisions is, yeah, the relationship, the connection, the experience with the buyer, with the seller, excuse me, the buyer's experience with the seller. Yeah. Um, because the products are become table stakes, right? You're going to have a decent product, a decent competitive price. And you look at markets like conversational intelligence is my favorite one to beat the drum on. So there are 40 plus companies offering products in that these yeah. days. I mean, how do you, if you're a buyer, how do you make a decision? Well, I don't think it's on the product. They all do the same thing. They all cost basically the same. It's the brand. It's the experience with the company, the experience with the seller. I think you hit the nail on the head. Like we've got that Gartner statistic kind of blew my mind, which was 70% of buyers said they, 72% of buyers said they want a rep free experience during their buying process. It says two detailed things to me, right? Which is the value of the seller now is so low in the buyer's arms, they, in the eyes. They just want an order taker, right? That's what right. they really want. So, so the first challenge we need to solve there is, okay, so how do we make the salesperson more valuable? And I'll, I'll touch on that in a moment. The second part for me is actually about the buyer's buying process now. So what they really do is most of the investigating and most of the kind of diagnosis of the problem and then find the vendor themselves. And then they feel they need to speak to a salesperson. So how do we influence the buyer process? Well, there's one simple thing that we can do straight away, which is going to increase the value of the seller and increase the, the value in the buying process. And that's to turn all sellers into mini market experts, because that's what buyers are craving from their sellers, from sellers at the moment is that grab a seller. They can tell you how good their product is and how amazing it is, but ask them about what's going on in the market and got clue. Mm -hmm. So the thing we can start doing is influencing the buyer at the awareness phase through market knowledge and challenges. Mm -hmm. so we should be literally trying to change our customers, our buyers thinking on their own problems and look, tell them where those icebergs in the distance are. Let them, right. you know, let them, you can help them see around corners. You, you have to speak to me because I'm a market expert. And if you speak to me, I'm going to add a ton of value in your process. Right. So why are you going to buy something? Let me, let me kind of stop you there and tell you the questions you should be asking. Let me tell you like how people are really buying this stuff and the value they're getting from it. And that does two things straight away. Number one, increases the value of the seller because they become an expert in that process. But number two, it changes the buyer's buyer process, buying process. They actually now start going, well, actually, I probably need the buyer earlier in this, the seller earlier in this process than I thought I did before. Mm -hmm. So one thing that we've been like, you know, trying to encourage enablement functions to do is stop with all this product training. Everyone's sick of it. Enablement is sick of it. Sellers are sick of it. And the customer's sick of it. Let's start doubling down on and market knowledge. No, it's not helping anyone. It's not helping. It's just, so, yeah. It's just noise. It's a waste of resource. So we should be doubling down on basically giving our reps like market expertise, deep market expertise. And I mean, I mean, even the SDR, we should be turning their, their calls now should be about talking about market problems. Right. That's all they should talk about. I agree. And that's enough to get the buyer seeing the value in the seller almost immediately, it might be. Well, that was always, in my mind, the huge disconnect between the buyer and the SDR model is that we people that are least experienced people, it's no fault of theirs. They're brand new with the least knowledge and put them closest to the customer. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember having a conversation with somebody that was influential in starting this whole movement going, let me just understand this. So you're selling this expensive product. And the first contact the buyer is going to have is with somebody who basically doesn't know anything about it just to set up a meeting. And it's, yeah, I got sort of the, the evil eye. It's okay. To your point you're making, Ernest, I, the 73% buyer free or seller free experience, I, you know, I think it's actually 100% of buyers that would like a seller free experience. But I think that most also buyers know that, to your point, if, you, if there was somebody that they could speak to that had this market expertise, they 
not only want to, they feel they need to be able to speak with that person, right? I think it's not a want, it's a need. And it's sort of, I don't know, I like to talk about the, if you're familiar with this whole research into social network theory about strong ties, weak ties. And, you know, organizations within an organization, the guys that Mark Granovetter and the other sociologists talk about this is that, you know, people within an organization all know the same information. Mm-hmm. They need to talk to somebody that they have weak ties with, i.e. a seller, who can come in and ask the questions they don't know to ask themselves, the challenges you talked about, and think, mm-hmm. and think more deeply and broadly about the challenges they face and the outcomes they can achieve by addressing them. Yeah, if the seller can do that, I think the buyer has all the time in the world for them. Really? Uh, the, the, the way I perceive it at the moment is the seller in the buyer's eyes. Is you, do you guys ever use those, those automatic checkouts at supermarkets? Yes. And think of that one item where it's like, unexpected item in the bagging area and then then a human being jumps in and punches a cone into a system and then lets you get on with it that's how the buyer perceives the seller at the moment is that can you just quickly give me something that i can then go and take away and make a decision and and that shows you that's no value there's zero value expectation is zero value yes doug yeah i mean with that analogy what if we could get that person to not have to go through that line in the first place and they leverage their time, right? So there's the, there's a solution to the problem. And buyers, I mean, buyers are, I mean, we've got to get to their opportunities and their, and their problems that they want to resolve or, or obtain, right? And so what we teach the people to get to what we call, I don't know questions, right? We got to get that buyer to go, wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, that makes sense. Or Never thought of it that way. My gosh, that seems like valuable consideration, right? So if we don't do that as the seller, then we're going to be that person in the checkout aisle. I love the analogy, right? And so all, and I think about creating people as market experts, I mean, that's what is needed in any complex sale because, I mean, I mean, Chet Holmes, I remember Chet years Mm -hmm. ago when I worked with Chet. I mean, we did something called the core story, right? And market-based education. Right. And that was the whole premise was to mm-hmm. get them to raise their eyebrows and go, geez, I didn't realize this. And so once we could realize that we were in and now we're positioned more as an expert versus positioned as any selling entity. To your point, Andy, I mean, you could have a hundred salespeople walk through the door, right? And the the, the board looking at them are going to go, okay, a hundred liars just came through. Somebody comes through with a with their sales manager and two salespeople, they go, okay, maybe one honest person, two liars coming in the room, right? But if you can get somebody to come in and have that board raise their eyebrows, then they go, oh, okay, this person makes sense. And that's what I think is is severely missing through conversational selling today. Then people aren't taught how to do that. So, and to your point, let's get away from, we got to know baseline product knowledge. We got to know the market information. We got to know that. But that is what a lot of people are still focused on, and that never works. And does it actually start even earlier than that? Because I think as important a skill as the market knowledge is, which I 100% agree with, I mean, I grew up in an environment where they selling you know, computer systems, but you know, we specialize in specific vertical markets. I didn't sold a range of products, but I was selling to the construction industry, and I didn't know anything about it to begin with, but eventually I knew a lot about it. Right. And it helped me succeed. So yeah, I'm a huge believer in that, but I think there's another sort of something that precedes that, which is how do we build a connection with another human being, right? How do we get to that point of trust and credibility? Because I would 
I don't harp on this, but I talk about it on this show a fair amount in other places is you don't teach that. We assume that people coming into the workforce know how to build connections and these types of relationships with functional relationships with buyers, but they don't. No. Yeah, it's it, a different it age. Back, and, and statistically, what I see is older people do a much better job than younger people at this. I think a lot of times people, the, the younger people, and I'm not saying because I'm older, but I'm just saying my my understanding is a lot of this is people are not looking to offend people, so they don't even try to push the envelope a little bit to get them to go, okay, I should pay attention to you, demonstrating their expertise, right? So so what I mean by that is coming in, you're absolutely right, Andy, and, and you said the word connection. We have to first create a positive connection, mm-hmm. right? Just like if we were scoping out a date in a restaurant, we look across and we go, whoa, she looks great, or whatever the thought is, we have to create a connection that makes that other person want to talk with us in some capacity. So that first most important line out of somebody's mouth, which I call the first most important question, is something that starts that dialogue running forth. And all people are interested in resolving their challenges or gaining opportunities. So we better understand what that should be right out of the gate. And then we build meaningful communication going forward in the form of follow-up in some capacity that's relevant. And a lot of times people are not talking about relevant. I mean, you talk about the mass email. I think, Aaron, you brought that up, right? I mean, the people, companies just mass emailing people out. I mean, I get those emails all the time. And it's, I mean, they're so off target. It's, yeah, I had one come through and go the other day. It was like, in your manufacturing company, I'm sure you have these problems. Well, I don't have a manufacturing company. So I'm curious, like, where do they get my information? So I call them and they go, oh my gosh, so you're on the, you're on the Pennsylvania list, right? A state in, 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 in the United States. I'm like, I, my company's in New Hampshire. Like their list is just complete rapport is gone at that point. Trust, Andy, yeah. to your point, right? How do we build trust? Yeah. Because trust is that differentiating, differentiating factor that allows us to continue. Well, unfortunately, it's, and people sort of in that role, I think, and this is not true across the board, but you run into a number of people, just they don't care, right? I mean, I've I had somebody a couple of years ago, very persistently, reach out to me on LinkedIn time and time again. And the pitch was, We've looked at your profile and we think you'd be an ideal person to start a podcast. You know, at that time I had a thousand plus episodes (laughs) across two different (laughs) podcasts (laughs) and, and I normally don't reply to these things, but I couldn't resist. I said, yeah, you reached out to me on LinkedIn. If you'd spent just 30 seconds on my profile on this platform, right? Didn't have to go anywhere else. You could have seen that for at that point for five plus years, I had a very successful podcast. And the response was literally, sure, but I don't have time for that. But then it feels like they've dented your ego there, which is never a start, right? All <laughs> right. Yeah. But, but the same How could you though, care not know about my podcast? Yeah, yes. Exactly. Yes. Do, you know, do you know who I am? No, but on, on a serious oh. note, though, why should they care? They're not incentivized to care. They're, right. They're not, no one's asking them to prioritize effectiveness. Everyone's asking them to prioritize efficiency. Right. So she's like, okay, let's just get a billion emails. Okay, I've done it. I've done my job. No one is sitting back in their organization and guarantee and saying, you know, you've got to do things properly because that's what drives outcomes. What they're actually saying is you just got to do more. So the meetings look like how many emails have you sent out? This amount. We need to send out more. No one's actually stopping and seeing what they're doing. And this is what SAS has done. It's prioritized efficiency over effectiveness. And we're all sitting here going, all of us have probably got a thousand anecdotes how someone has reached out to us with completely wrong information outside of their ICP. 
demanding our time. Not mm. asking, demanding our time. Well, of course, like they, they're incentivized to just get a meeting, not with the right person. So right. how do we change it? Well, first of all, we've got to bloody slow down and go, is 75% year-on-year growth really realistic for the rest well, of the time? Well, no, it's not. Yeah. We've got to manage expectations up and say, we've got to do something sustainable. But this is not exclusively a SaaS issue, though. I mean, no. what started in SaaS is everywhere now. So, yeah. But, that, but isn't that the problem, though, right? Is that these traditional businesses have looked at SaaS as the maturity curve because they're getting this 75% year-on-year growth in some cases. And they've said, well, we want a piece of that. So our 10% year-on-year growth, which we've been doing for the last 100 years, is now not acceptable. So that's the worrying thing for me, is that people are looking at SaaS as the answer. That's just trying to achieve these traditional businesses' maturity curve. Yeah. They're going back and saying, can we borrow you on bottom? Well, you are the maturity curve of SaaS. It just blows my mind. But yeah, I mean, it's not exclusive to SaaS, you're right. No, and people take, the, I think, the wrong lesson. I mean, if ideally you look at a VC portfolio, they say 10 companies, yeah. We want two winners, three that are okay, and five are going to be failures. And it's like, well, that's not a very good win rate. <laughs> so so now we know where this influence comes from, right? Is Yeah, we don't really care at the end of the day because what we really want is just that one big score. And this, yeah, is, yeah, what, like- this is what we've seen is companies see that companies selling this way and thinking, oh, well, company XYZ, they're a unicorn. And it's like, well, they're not a unicorn because they sold this way. That's just an accident, right? They had the right product market fit at the right time. They could have you know, sold full cycle sales reps. They would have had the same success. And now a word from Cognizant. Picture this, your revenue team armed with accurate B2B contact data that leaves missed opportunities and unreachable prospects in the past. Look no further than Cognizm, the B2B contact data provider that stands out with unwavering focus on data quality and coverage. Cognizm's U.S. data set alone offers two times more cell phone numbers than any other provider on the market. And it gets even better. 7 million human-verified cell phone numbers backed by a 98% accuracy rate deliver precision like you've never seen before. And if international business growth is on the horizon, Cognizm offers the most complete GDPR-compliant data in Europe making your expansion dreams more attainable than ever. Customers like Drift have already experienced the power of Cognizm. In just 30 days, they proved ROI and now book 70% of their outbound meetings using Cognizm's cell phone data. But don't take our word for it. Get a free data sample and test the quality for yourself. Head over to Cognizm.com slash data sample to get your free data sample today. That's Cognizm.com slash data sample. Well, I think if you want to increase close rate, you look at profitability because that profitability will tell you exactly what you're saying, Aaron. I mean, we could run 100 leads at 50% conversion rate, pick up 50 clients. We can run 1,000 leads at a 5% conversion rate, and we, we pick up the same amount of clients. So if we're looking at effectiveness, then we look at profitability, at least to some degree, right? And that helps us start to step back and go, okay, why aren't we qualifying better? You know, why are we churning through? I mean, I've looked at some company, and this is crazy. When we look at engagement from, say, stage zero into stage one, I have one company that 62% of their leads were never engaged from stage zero to stage one. Mm. Like never. Not, not unusual. At 14 bucks a lead, these guys yeah. are generating millions of dollars a month, and no one's looking at this. 
So, and the crazy part is if they went from stage one into stage two, they can, they converted 34% of the time. Yeah. (laughs) So when I told the CEO of this, he was like, well, I won't say what he said because I can't repeat that here, but the reality is he said, no, this isn't true. And I'm like, here's your spreadsheet. Let me know when you want to fix it. And he calls me back less than 24 hours later and goes, we got to fix this. And that company grew from 48 million to 110 million in two years. by fixing that problem. So when we look at profitability, which is what I tend to look at, and we look at optimization of effectiveness, like Aaron, you're speaking on here, you're speaking about versus efficiency, or you look at both of those, that's even better. But the reality is that if you just look at effectiveness, then it tends to reveal these untapped revenue sources, these untapped profit places. Absolutely. Yeah. People are always confused the efficiency and the effectiveness. Like I say is, yeah, before you can become efficient, you have to be effective. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, people say, I want to sell more. And I say, well, sure. But before you sell more, you have to sell better. And once mm-hmm. you learn how to sell better, then you can sell more. But no, we're just going to sell more. But I mean, back to profitability is, I mean, it seems like an easy equation for her many CFOs if they looked at it and said, oh, yeah, well, if we increased our win rate on a consistent basis, and then we could spend a lot less on top of funnel activity, right? Mm-hmm. Instead of having spending however many thousands, tens of thousands or millions of dollars a month to get 5X, 6X pipeline coverage, maybe we only need two and a half to three. And wouldn't that be better? Why? It seems I'm always surprised that that connection hasn't been made. I, yeah. I think we, have to, we look at how they're incentivized, right? So if they hit a certain margin and they get their quarterly bonus or their whatever bonus, then that's all they're going to look at. But marketing's not in charge, right? I mean, it's that. I mean, I've had this conversation so with people on the show as well because marketing's incentives. Well, there's somebody above marketing. <laughs> well, no, this is what like, I'm saying. Like, we're, we're, yeah, I agree. But if you take like a chief financial officer, or we take a chief revenue officer, how are we really incenting that? Right? I mean, uh, who's paying attention to this? Is the CEO paying yeah. attention to this compensation? Right. Because if they're right. not, then they're just going to hit their numbers and they go, okay, I capped out my compensation. Everybody's happy. Nobody talks about this bleed that's happening because they look at it from top line and they go, well, okay, we're, pro- we're making money. We're making some profit. We're good to go. But the three of us would look at it and go, well, yeah, but you're leaving all this on the table. Exactly. Right. So, and, and, and sometimes people don't bring it forth because they're afraid. I found if they may not be doing their job, uh, perceived as that personal ROI, they kind of get slapped down for actually bringing these things forth. I remember uh, a telecom manager one time, I I looked at their telecom bills when I had my telecommunications uh, consulting company, and I found a half million dollars a year that they were overspending. They just signed an agreement three years with AT&T. And I told them, I said, look, you're still within that window. We can go back and renegotiate this and you can drop a half million dollars off your play. They wouldn't do it because the VP and the director of telecom were like, no, we don't want to look foolish. And uh, it was really hard for them to wrap their brain around, hey, we just hired an expert CEO that just dropped us because we're so smart. We double checked ourselves, right? That type of thing. And we renegotiated. We just saved a half million dollars for the company in profit, right? Because they're not spending it out. Right. Right. But, you know, they don't. So there's a myriad of reasons, I think, behind it, maybe not a gazillion of them, but enough that people, if we look at it from the 
CEO standpoint on how they're being compensated on every level and we're incenting them to actually do better, then now we can have a judgment stick in which they can reach for. Yeah. And that, that raises a great question about, yeah, how should we change some of that compensation, especially at some of the management levels? Because I contend that if you're leading a sales organization and you've got a yeah, 25% win rate, let's say, you're failing mm-hmm. on a very obvious level. And yeah, if you're, I like to sort of make the analogy, if you're a sales leader or even a frontline sales manager, make it more you know, discreet example is if your seller's operating at that low win rate level, or you've got extremely poor quota attainment is you're sort of like a manufacturer, a plant manager in a manufacturing facility is you're not producing the quality product, the product being this buying experience for the buyers. So what are you doing? I think you've hit on what I kind of found is one of the biggest problems is actually quality of sales management in 2023. And, and I enormous sympathy for managers in this process. I think oh, sure. the, average, the average tenure of a manager now is 19 months sales manager and it's 11 months within SaaS. So yeah. we've got this kind of, we've got this, we've actually got this sort of black hole of, of proper sales management knowledge that's just disappeared over the last generation. And I don't think it's being taught down. And I think that there is a massive problem with sales managers. And I think this is reported in most of the figures that we see. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the slack is carried by the sales salesperson. But actually, I mean, we go into organizations and the standard of coaching and the standard of just general management practice, and so even the standard of expectations that are set amongst teams is so low. To the point where I mean, if you were to ask a manager, most modern managers, to actually examine a pipeline and tell you where the pipeline's going wrong, I think they'd really struggle. Yes. I think they'd really struggle to analyze a pipeline, even their own pipeline, and do that effectively. So, so I think we've lost a lot of management competency. Right. So how do we get it back? I mean, how do we, what do we, and I think part of this too is some of the answer is how we do compensate people in these roles. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, one example I give that managers typically don't like, and this is, I've actually done this as a consultant before, but it is, yeah, people worry about quota attainment, Right. Well, let's look at quota attainment. Well, what if we changed management compensation? So some significant portion of their variable compensation was they got fixed amount per seller that hit quota. Mm-hmm. You get $2,000 if the if you, for, per seller in your team that hits quota. You don't think behaviors would change in a heartbeat? Yeah. It sounds they're, they're <laughs> sensible, mate. It sounds way too sensible. <laughs> Andy, I think you're going to get a lot of hate mail coming through on that one. But <laughs> well, not the first time I brought it up, but it's, it's to the point is your job as a manager is to develop these people. Exactly. And one thing that just drives me absolutely crazy, and I see, I've seen this repeatedly on LinkedIn in the last couple of months, and I've called it out before, is, and this is people, well-known voices that shouldn't absolutely know better, saying, well, things are going to be different now. And so what you're going to do is when you get your leads, you're going to give your best leads to your best people. And I'm like, oh. How stupid could you be to say that? Your job is to develop your entire team. If you have a seller on your team that you've been so lazy that you haven't developed them to the point where they can handle a good lead, then you're not doing your job. Or if you can't trust them and you put the time and effort and you can't trust them, then manage them out of the company. The problem is that, that, that they don't know how to hire any more managers. They don't know how to look for the right competencies. They don't know how to... But even interviewing is a lost art amongst modern managers. Sure. But I mean, just some common sense stuff, right? Is if you want to perpetuate 
sort of the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer. And you see this all the time in sales organizations. I'm sure, Aaron, you see it. You walk into an organization, as I did as a consultant, it's, well, you're not giving 60% of your people the opportunity to work on, quote unquote, good leads, the ones that are most, most likely to buy your product. You're giving it to these people over here. And even they're not winning a very high percentage of them. Yeah. I mean, your job as a manager, make sure everybody can function at that level. And if they can't, yeah. make changes. But these behaviors are modeled though as well though, right? So I think again, like 71% of managers go into a management role without any formal training. Yes. It's a staggering statistic. Imagine getting a going sitting in a hairdresser's chair and only three of the hairdressers have actually been trained how to cut hair. You wouldn't do it, right? Aaron, that's what happened to me and you see what the result is, right? That's why Aaron, that's why Aaron never goes to a barber and I dug exactly. <laughs> exactly. But but to your point, to both of your points, managers, their job is the, the, the challenge is they're never trained to think like an owner. They're trained to sort of think like a manager. And they're not even trained to do that half the time, right? So managers, their 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 sole job, as you said, Andy, grow the team. Grow the team revenue and profitability, right? But they're not doing so most of the time. They're not, they don't coach. A lot of them don't even coach, right? So they don't know how to coach. They've never been trained to do this. They don't know what it's like to be an owner of. And if we can get them to think, okay, my department, my division is a separate P&L, a separate company within the company. And I'm going to run this like I was an owner of that company. So every single dollar that flies or penny that flies in and out of this, I'm responsible for. And my people, to your point, Andy, never feed the the wheat. Never. I mean, that's just, that's yeah. suicide in, in selling as a manager. So you feed the strong and you can prop up the weak only so much. And then eventually you got to cut them. And, you know, they sh- managers should be looking at, okay, how do I get rid of 10% of my force every single year that's on the lower end and replace them with people who are on the higher end and keep raising that bar or 10 or 20%, whatever the number we want to take, right? I mean, we do the same in consulting, Andy, for our clients if we sure. want to keep our consulting practice to grow. But they have to commit to developing these people, right? I mean, they're saying that's their job. And this is, as an owner, I contend, they would take that point of view. This ethos of in sales Certainly when I got into sales, it was made very clear to me. In our case, we had initially geographic territories, but then had a line of business territory. This is your business, mm-hmm. right? You're the CEO of this business. You need to think about it this way, how you spend your time, invest our resources collectively, all those things. As you talked about, Doug, we seem to have lost a lot of that. The sense mm-hmm. of ownership over outcomes other than just revenue or activity. Do, do you guys think that maybe part of it is people are afraid to rock the boat like they used to because of compliance or HR, or, you know what I mean? Or, or media or whatever. Well, I think the, I think it's conformity. I think it's, I think yeah. there's this, been this press to conformity. We've got these processes, right? I mean, I'm always, I mean, I shouldn't say this on it, but yeah, I'm used to, you know, I see on various places, yeah, very expensive consultants talking about, well, we built this sales architecture for company. I'm going, well, sure, but they're performing at a really low win rate in general. It's so what? I mean, this is sort of miss the plot. Yeah, we can have a fancy process all we want, but at the end of the day, we're not able to create these buying experiences that help the customers make decisions. We didn't do the job. You can have all the fancy diagrams you want. It's not working. 
yeah, it's working to yield low win rates, but it's not working the way it should. I, th- I think Doug hit on quite an interesting point there, though. Maybe you guys can validate this from what you see over in the States, but I feel over the last 10 years, we've lost the art of the difficult conversation, particularly around standards and particularly around upholding standards. And again, I, th- this might be a kind of HR thing. This might be a compliance thing, but I think underperformance is accepted a lot more in business now. And I don't think managers panic early with underperformance. I think it often gets to a level of toxicity and, and the point of no return before those conversations start happening. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but certainly when I first started selling, it was like there was a real high standard set within the organization. And if you stepped out of line of those values and those standards, there was a pretty serious conversation that took place almost immediately. And it feels like we've got a softer underbelly. And I don't, I don't want to sound like an old codger here when I say this, because I think some of the conversations that are happening back there shouldn't have happened as well, just to be really clear. But I do, I do think that we've maybe the pendulum swung the other way now where there isn't enough consequence to basically poor performance, but also lowering standards. But I wonder if I almost look at it a little bit differently, which was the game X point I was making before is so certainly that's coming up. <laughs> carrying a bag, but also when I was growing sales teams at startups and so on, is we created a, a framework. And within that framework, we gave people the ability to be themselves, right? To be the best version of themselves, to bring them best version of themselves to sales. Because not everybody's going to sell in the exact same way. And right. what I see is, is more the culprit is over the last 10, 15 years, 20 years is, no, it's this is the way you're going to sell, right? Mm. We use our technology instead of saying, look, I'm going to use the technology or listen to phone calls. And so we're not going to use the technology to enable you to become the best version of you. We want you to become just like Mike. Yeah. Right. And the goal is not to make everybody just like Mike, because no one can be Mike except for Mike. I want you to be the best. I want you to be Aaron. I want you to be Doug. And I'm going to work as a manager. I'm going to work and using all these tools available to help you become the best version of you. And yes, you're going to be operate differently within this framework. But instead, today, it's, no, do this, do that, do this. This is the playbook. Follow the playbook. And it's, yeah, if there's a million salespeople in the world, there's a million distinct ways to sell. As a manager, you don't have that, in general, you don't have that many people working for you that you can't support people doing that. But I think that's the classic conflation of kind of processes and and scaling, is that there's a perception that if you're scaling, you have to build centralized processes and you have to build centralized ways of doing things and that's the perception of scaling when actually it's not quite like that then there's a lot more agency and autonomy around like you say frameworks versus right. rigid structures but again what i find fascinating is we when we go into like supersized businesses like massive businesses you realize that what ends up happening is there's a collapse of process that everyone then ends up starting doing whatever they want and actually becomes carnage and again, like we're talking about mega businesses here, not so there's there seems to be this kind of inflection point with scale where everything's centralized and tightly can control, but everything then decentralizes weirdly, but then it sort of turns into like weird chaos where it's completely disorganized. But you'd expect those centralized processes to keep as it scales to a certain level, but it actually doesn't, which I always find really fascinating. Well, I think that's where again the frameworks become important, right? And I think that's where companies like Historically, IBM back in the day when I was getting started, I worked for a company called Burroughs, which is a huge computer company of itself, own at that time, is yeah, there are frameworks. And yeah, that's the way sort of managers looked at it is, is I didn't do things exactly like everybody else did. I serve 
went my own path within the framework because, yeah, I looked at the way other people are selling. I said, hey, that's not me, right? I mean, I can't do that. If that's what I have to do, I'm not going to be able to do this job. But I know I can do this job. I just need to find my own path for it. And I think this ability to for people to say, look, I'm going to find my own path within the framework has largely been constrained because to some degree, getting back to the point was made before, is managers are on such a short leash as they mm-hmm. operate from this position of fear. I can't let people color outside the lines because I've got such a short period of time to prove myself. And I'm going to do the things I think have the highest probability of success was make everybody conform to this process. And I can't be blamed if it doesn't work because, hey, I complied to the process. I think there's a formula within that framework though, right? Mm-hmm. That can be taught. So if yeah. we teach the formula of success, because you're right, not everybody's going to be Mike. They never could, mm-hmm. but they can still perform like Mike did if they understand what the formula was and they adapt it to their own abilities. Yeah, get the results that Mike got, but then the path between conception yeah. to the results is going to be their own. And that's fine. What we have to get back to is, yeah, helping people feel comfortable with that. We start to wind down on time. I really want to be conscious of your time, especially Aaron, since you're eight, nine o'clock at night. Eleven. Wow. Yes. If you haven't had a pint, please have one. Really appreciate you taking the time to do this on a Friday evening. And, And Doug, thank you as well. Appreciate you hanging around. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode of the Win Rate Podcast. First of all, as always, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I'm so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank my guests, Aaron Evans and Doug C. Brown, for sharing their insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, The Win Rate Podcast with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, before you go, don't forget to subscribe to my weekly newsletter called Win Rate Wednesday. Each week on Wednesday, you'll receive an actionable tip that you can put to use in your selling to become a more effective seller and to accelerate your own rights. So again, thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Mm -hmm.